Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jason Snell. That's me. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. Uh, we're back with more space stuff. The space. Uh, remember that time when we were going to record two episodes at once and then not record for a month, and mm-hmm. then we discovered that there is so much space news that it really, like every two weeks, is even kind of a hard, uh, hard schedule to be on. Ah, oh, good times, good times. We were so innocent then. Nah, there's not going to be a lot of space news. <laughs> but we should start with the most important news, which is related to us and liftoff, uh, which is that we have. I think landed on a name for the space law segment. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to Kate and other people in the members discord, you can go to relay FM and become a member and support uh, actually any show at relay. We would love you to support liftoff, but if you support any show at relay FM, you get access to the discord and you'll get access to our, our member bonus, which I guess we should mention. We we are going to be, it's coming up membership time here at relay fm and you and i have already recorded Mm -hmm. our special episode which will be dropping sometime in august i don't remember the date do you remember the date? Uh, august 14th i think is our date all right and should we should we reveal what what the episode is yeah did we already it's it's a space shuttle missions draft is what it is Mm -hmm. and you get that whether you whether you support liftoff or not just being a relay fm member so thank you if you're a relay fm member and a special thank you if you're supporting liftoff um, anyway, one of your other benefits is that you get in this member's Discord community, which is really nice, and you can talk about the show there. There's a live chat while we're going live. There's a space channel, which is really nice, because uh, on the Relay FM member's Discord, they don't actually have, like, per-show channels. It's per-topic. ha. there's a space topic. Whose show is that? That's our show. Um, I guess Rocket, which is not a podcast about space, could, they could talk about space in there if they wanted to. But. <laughs> Anyway, Kate and others in the Discord uh, sent this along. So I guess this is what the Space Law segment is stands for now. It's Space Law segment. Scrutinizing proposals and concisely explaining laws alongside ways space experimentation guidelines manage existing and new technologies. Space Law segment. Space Law segment. There it is. So next time the Space Laws come up, we've got, uh, we've got a, a, a name for it in the true space acronym mm-hmm. style. It it is a true sibling to the SLS segment. They are cut from the same cloth. I feel like they are. They are by law <laughs> cut from the same space cloth. Yeah, we've got a couple of uh, of bigger topics in this episode, but we've also, as always, got prefect, which is our again sort of almost an acronym uh, for the preflight checklist. We just shortened it to prefect. Um, Stephen, you want to? tell them about our first item yeah so some people on twitter pointed this out to us so we just wanted to pass it along so the u.s space and rocket center which i have been to it's in huntsville they uh have a lot of educational stuff going on throughout the year they have camps going on throughout the year as a kid i would have probably murdered somebody to go to space camp and as you can imagine in our current covid world uh, all that stuff has come to a halt and it seems like the U.S. Space and Rocket Center is uh, really hurting on the budgetary front. So they have a couple of pages up, uh, including a GoFundMe to help keep their doors open. Right now, they say they have enough runway to get to October, which is not very far away. Uh, we know some great people down there, and it would be uh, it'd be a shame to see it uh, fall in this uh, 
in this current world. I know a lot of things are hurting and there's a lot of things to pay attention to, but the space nerds out there, you know, the Space and Rocket Center is a big deal. So I just wanted to point that out and and point people their links. Go read about it. And if you feel like something you want to get involved with, uh, go get involved with it. All right. Very nice. I've got a really quick item about the James Webb Space Telescope. Okay. Which which, uh, it got delayed again. Yeah not it's like it's like dog bites man at this point right it's like oh news of a delay with the james webb space telescope no get out no way but i'm gonna say this so this is this is uh it's going to be launched no sooner than i love that phrase halloween 2021 so we're talking about late 2021 is the earliest that we're gonna see a launch of the james webb space telescope now this though is more about slowing down work on the telescope to get it ready to launch because of the pandemic the good news is NASA says that the delay will not add to the project's overall cost. It was capped, as we have talked about here, at $8.8 billion by Congress a few years ago. Uh, they've got some reserves in the budget, so they're going to be able to make it. Um, and it's funny because I actually find this date the most... I don't know, I'm the most optimistic about this date that I've ever been about a James Webb Space Telescope date. I feel like they're going to launch in late 2021. I'm not yet ready to declare 2021 the year of the James Webb Space Telescope because we're talking about November and December and, you know, very easy to push into 2022. But I feel like they kind of got their act together and it seemed like they were finally closing the deal and the, the COVID-19 stuff has has slowed their progress. But I don't see any sign here that they're going to um, that they've hit like an unexpected bump. I think they're just, mm-hmm. it's going to take them a little bit longer because they have to work a little bit more slowly and less efficiently to get across the finish line. Yeah, I, I had the same thoughts in reading this. It doesn't seem like there's technical issues. It's just COVID. Like it's just where we all yep. are. Working exactly. more slowly, working in smaller teams, uh, taking uh, breaks in between shifts. So uh, it seems like this is just because of outside factors and uh, you mentioned the budget cap. Uh, I also wanted to highlight that's eight point eight billion with a B. Yeah, uh, yeah, billion, mm-hmm. billion, way dollars. over timeline and budget. But hopefully, this last push will be enough, and we'll see this thing finally fly next year. We'll cross our fingers, but maybe, maybe, maybe that'll be our maybe that'll be our goal for twenty twenty one. The thing that we have nothing to do with, but we still mm. look at like commercial crew year of James for twenty eighteen, <laughs> twenty nineteen, and twenty twenty. Um, year of James Webb twenty twenty one, maybe. Okay. Uh, speaking of things that are happening uh, that, that w- they keep putting off but might actually happen, sounds like Virgin Galactic is inching closer to taking like regular people into the edges of space. Yeah, so Virgin Galactic is all about space tourism. Although they say, if you read their stuff, hey, we can take you know scientific payloads right. as Na- well. <laughs> NASA said that they that they may do that, right? They may send send some people and some scientists uh, on suborbital missions at some point too, right? Uh, including like, Blue Origin was also in that conversation. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, Virgin Galactic spaceship to Unity. This spacecraft, just as a quick reminder, is the one that has like a massive carrier plane. And then it's dropped from the plane. It has a single rocket that pushes it up to these higher altitudes, you know, kind of at the edge of space. So it's not a rocket per se in the traditional sense. The big thing with space tourism, of course, is like, what will the experience be like? And this is really what Virgin Galactic's announcement today has has been all about. And they live streamed this. And then at the same time, Lauren Grush over at The Verge uh, had an article. She got to do a VR tour of it ahead of time, and she wrote about her experience, including this really great antidote where, because it's VR, she realized that, oh, like, 
I can like, what if I stand up and her head comes out of the top of the spacecraft? Like she can see the earth outside. <laughs> I love that. You know, it's VR. Like you can just stick your head sure. through things. Um, that made me chuckle when I read it, but this, uh, the spacecraft is for space tourism. And so that is all mm-hmm. about the views and the experience. And there are going to be six seats. Each is customizable, uh, for individual customers. So they have four base sizes of seat, and then they can adjust the padding, even down to details. Like if you wear your hair in a ponytail or a bun or something, they have indents in the headrest. So your hair is not, you know, pushing against your ponytail, but it has a place to go. Really like fine attention to detail here that I found really impressive reading through this and watching the video earlier. Another nice touch is the harnesses. They have these multi-point harnesses you wear during the flight. And then of course you want to unclip them and then, you know, be able to kind of float above your seat, float in the cabin when you're in that microgravity environment. They've made it easy to disconnect the harnesses by like a single twisting action. Customers will go through some training before that. You, sure. you know, you can't just like buy a ticket and get on it like as a ride at Disneyland. But they want to make sure it's accessible to people and making this easy to do. And they they had this term called kelping. And the engineers came up with this because they didn't want the harnesses to float around in the cabin like kelp kind of waves around underwater, right? That sort of undulating motion. And mm-hmm. so the harness does this cool automatic retractable thing, and it's easy to get back out. Again, attention to detail seems very impressive. There are large windows to the side of your seat and above your seat, complete with a hand grips. So you can go up to the window and sort of smush your face against the window. So all this is great. It seems really cool. The pictures look like it's a beautiful place to be. Like I just, yeah. I want to like ride this across town, even not even space. Seems sure, like a, <laughs> seems like a nice place. It's got, it's got cameras everywhere. So in addition to your memories, you're going to walk away with video and pictures mm-hmm. of you being, you know, floating and being amazed. If you, you know, you being a very wealthy person who goes on one of these. But yeah, that's part of the idea. So what's what's next? Uh, they've shown this off. Uh, they're several more steps before they're ready to punch your ticket and go to space. They need to do a test flight out of Spaceport in America, which is their pretty large facility out in New Mexico. That that test flight hasn't happened yet. They will then do test flights with passengers. Most likely, these would be engineers who worked on the cabin and other parts of the system, so they can sort of check all this out in flight. And then at some date in the future... There'll be the first commercial flight. Richard Branson will be, of course, one of the six. And uh, and then they'll be off to the races with their space tourism goals, which they've, they've talked about this for a long time. So it is cool to see them uh, get closer and this becoming a more real thing day by day. Yeah, it's getting closer. Mm-hmm. That's so, so much of what we talk about is just following these long-term projects as they get closer and closer to reality. Yep. Um, kelping. Okay. You don't want to... Kelping. I'm here from Virgin Galactic, and I'm here to kelp. <laughs> uh, before we get to our topics, or two, we have two big topics. Uh, one last prefect item, which is about Reen Carpenter, who was the wife of Scott Carpenter, one of the original Mercury, Mercury astronauts. She died at the age of 92. Uh, notable, I, I think, she, her story is very interesting. Um, also, in terms of marking the passage of time, um, 
we already had lost all of the Mercury astronauts. We've now lost all of their wives as well. The ast- original Astronauts Wives Club, she, uh, after John Glenn's wife died last year, Reen Carpenter was the last surviving uh, spouse of a Mercury astronaut. And she passed away recently at the age of 92. Apparently, she is the source of some of the best material in the right stuff. That She talked to Tom Wolfe in his research for that. And uh, she was very outspoken and was happy to disclose all sorts of stories, including the idea of the model of the, um, well, I'm thrilled and proud and just it's very excited kind of thing that that all the astronaut wives had to say to the media. Uh, she talked about that a lot. And she was she disclosed a lot of stories to Tom Wolfe. So some of the great stuff that's in the, the right stuff probably came from Reen Carpenter. Um, another interesting thing that I didn't know about Reen Carpenter is Scott Carpenter launched uh, Aurora 7 in 1962. And as you've seen, if you've watched any kind of film a documentary or fictional from this period, um, astronauts' families generally watch the launch at home. In you know in Houston for all the Apollo stuff, but generally they were they were at home, mm-hmm. and that was not the case for Reen Carpenter. She took her kids to Florida and they watched the launch in Florida, which was uh, so. I think that it doesn't seem spectacular, but I think that shows you just how uh, how she was unwilling to go along to get along with the people at NASA. She wanted to be there, and so she was. She had a very strong personality. She wasn't going to get pushed around by the conventions of the time. Um, there's also a hilarious picture uh, in uh, the New York Times obituary for her of all of the astronauts' wives posing uh, during the early days of the Mercury program, and they were all told to wear pastel dresses, and so all the other wives have pastel dresses, and she's got this flower print dress. She's like, <laughs> no, I'm not wearing that. Yeah, Amazing. Like, just amazing stories like that. She divorced Scott, Scott Carpenter in 1971 and later remarried, although she kept the name uh and my favorite anecdote is that uh allegedly chris craft former flight director at nasa when reen carpenter was mentioned uh historically this is sort of like uh you know in the 70s or 80s when reen carpenter was brought up by uh by somebody who said oh you know i know reen carpenter uh chris craft's eyes lit up and he was like oh man now she should have been picked for the program which I think is a great little thing. Like she was so good. She learned about all of the technical stuff. She was, she educated herself about orbital mechanics and things like that. She wanted to know what was going on. And, um, and yeah, maybe in a different uh, timeline, uh, she's the one who's the astronaut and not Scott Carpenter. But anyway, so uh, it, rest in peace, ring Carpenter 92 and the Mercury project really passes into deep history. Now she had this, this, uh, amazing career in the 70s too she had a television program called every woman where she on tv and think about the 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 year you know the 70s really bringing feminist perspectives on all sorts of subjects uh to the masses a very outspoken believer in lots of things and wasn't ever willing to sort of be in the shadow of the program like maybe some others really seems like an incredible woman. I'm currently reading um, The Relentless Moon by uh, Mary Robinette Kowal, which is the third book in this Lady Astronaut series, which is sort of a parallel uh, it's alt, alt history space stuff. And I've recommended it, the series before. It starts with The Calculating Stars, which won the Hugo Award. Um, if you like reading uh, space stuff 
I recommend it. It's, you know, it's fiction, but it's a great kind of alternate history in the in line of For All Mankind, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm reading the latest one of those. And, and I was thinking about that while I was reading Reen Carpenter's obituary, because the, that the premise of those books is very similar of, uh, you know, they're very, very much feminist books. And it involves women being astronauts in the 60s instead of uh, just, you know, only being allowed to be the wives of astronauts. Mm-hmm. So um, that's I will recommend that series again. It's really great. People should check it out. And there is a third book in that series out now. So if you didn't know, now, you know. All right, let's move on to a commercial crew update because, you know, Bob and Doug are buddies from a SpaceX demo mission, Demo 2, are still up at the International Space Station. They've done their work. They've changed the batteries. They've done their spacewalks. They've done all of that. And we've reached the point. Remember, they had that squishy, like, well, sometime in August, maybe we'll bring them back kind of thing because they need to do chores. They need the extra hands at the ISS. But now they want them back so that they can also prep for SpaceX uh, Crew-1, the official first non-test trip with astronauts to the International Space Station. And so um, we need to get those guys back, Stephen. We need to bring them back. So the the plan currently is for them to undock from the space station on August 1st. So that's just the end of this week. Depending on timing and weather, uh, they could come back, I think, as quickly as six hours or as long as 30 hours, just, again, depending on those variables. And there is some weather moving into the Gulf of Mexico, it looks like, towards the end of the week. So that that's a big factor here this, that may delay this. There are up to seven possible splashdown sites uh, within reach of both NASA and SpaceX crew. So there'll be ships and helicopters and things standing by on either side of the Florida panhandle. So they can either land in the Atlantic or in the Gulf of Mexico, just like uh, Apollo and and even the shuttle and all other spacecraft returning, they will experience a blackout period as they go through the heat of reentry. That is expected to be up to six minutes. Now the, Dragon itself, not the crew dragon, but the the regular cargo dragon has come back many times. So a lot of this is is pretty well understood in how the vehicle will behave. So those six minutes are are pretty well documented. Uh, They'll come down, and again, just like other capsules, they'll have drug parachutes, big parachutes, and they will splash down in the water. Now, this is where things begin to differ from something like Apollo, all those famous shots of crew, you know, climbing out of their capsules waving to the helicopters, you know, getting out on the life raft. These guys are going to be sealed in the Crew Dragon until it's back on board a recovery ship. So there will be people on boats, in the water, making sure that everything is safe and sound, that they are, uh, that they're not venting anything, that they're not leaking, that everything is okay. And then they will bring them back up onto the recovery ship. That could take up to an hour, depending on exactly where they splash down and and where the closest ship is. Once they're back on board, they'll they'll they will then be let out of the capsule. They'll be um, flown to Candy Space Center. They'll have a uh, a checkout medical clearance, just like you would coming back via Soyuz capsule. Very similar test. And then they will fly back to Houston. And their capsule will be uh, checked out over a series of six weeks 
to be certified that this was a successful test flight to make sure that mm -hmm. all the systems in the capsule, the capsule itself withstood everything it was supposed to. And then at the end of that six week certification, hopefully this will be given the thumbs up that this was a, a successful test run. Yeah, that paves the way for Crew-1, and I believe we've now seen that this will pave the way for this capsule to be used again, along with uh, some of the rockets, because that was part of SpaceX's mo most recent deal with NASA, is they're going to, they're so happy at this point that they're talking about reusing mm -hmm. the equipment, which is uh, going to save money and uh, waste and is a good thing. Now, so we've been talking about Crew-1. We should talk about Crew-2, because NASA has now announced who's going to fly on the SpaceX Crew-2 mission as... As Boeing, you know, li lingers a little bit, SpaceX is rolling now with their commercial crew program. So Crew 2 is coming up in 2021. Uh, two NASA astronauts will uh, run the uh, run the show. It's Shane Kimbrough and Megan MacArthur. Uh, they are going to be the commander and pilot for this mission. And then there will be two more passengers on board because uh, they can do that now. Uh, and it's uh, Akihiko Hoshide from uh, JAXA, the J Japanese Space Agency, and uh, Thomas Pesquet from the European Space Agency, and they're the mission specialists on this mission. Um, so a little background. Kimbrough was an astronaut in 2004. He was on Space Shuttle Endeavour in STS-126. Uh, and then he went on a Soyuz for Expedition 49 and 50 in 2016. So he spent 189 days in space, performed six spacewalks. This is a veteran uh, astronaut. Mm -hmm. um, Megan MacArthur is interesting. She's Bob Behnken's wife. So he does Demo 2. She does Crew 2. That's fun. They met in astronaut training. We talked about that when we were talking about uh, Bob Behnken uh, as part of our run-up to Demo 2. Um, so she was selected in 2000 as an astronaut. She was on Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-125, which was the final Hubble servicing mission. Cool. That was 2009. Like that mission. Maybe we'll draft it. Maybe we won't. You'll have to get the members <laughs> episode to find out. Uh, she ran the uh, Canadarm on the shuttle for that 12-plus uh, day mission in space. Because uh, you got to get the Canadarm to grab the telescope and move it, and then you got to move the people around in order to fix the Hubble Space Telescope, and that's what she did. Um, this is Hoshide's third space flight. Um, he was part of STS-124 on Discovery in 2008, and on Expeditions 32 and 33, uh, riding on the Soyuz for 124-day visit to the ISS. So another ISS veteran, and yes, Pesquet as well, uh, previously flew. He was on Expeditions 50 and 51, uh, again, via Soyuz, and spent 196 days in space. So we've got four veteran astronauts flying on Crew 2 um, when they get up there, which is, it's looking like early next year? Yeah, it should be in the spring. Yeah, spring 2021, assuming, you know, again, that everything goes well with Demo 2, and then they've got Crew 1, which is going to be uh, late September, they're saying right now, for Crew 1, because again, as as we just uh, said, you got to kind of uh, go over 
the Demo-2 spacecraft and, and verify that all the aspects of the test flight were successful. And then they roll on with Crew-1 and then, uh, and then Crew-2. So the NASA rides uh, from the U.S. to the ISS uh, proceed apace. It's uh, pretty cool. It is cool. And it you know depends on the spacecraft coming back, hopefully the end of the week being all good to go. But so far, I think it's performed uh, the way they want it to. Uh, I was also struck by the the really pretty serious resumes by all of these astronauts. And that's what NASA and SpaceX want. They want people who have flown many times before, have spent time at the International Space Station. We will eventually start getting into these newer astronaut classes. But I think for now, we're going to continue to see relatively experienced crew members uh, on the most part for these early flights. I want to talk about Mars, Stephen. Okay. Before we go, Mars. I got a Mars update for you. We don't need an acronym for this, um, but it is it is Mars. See, this is uh, okay. Summer of Mars. Because <laughs> you know we got to launch. It's the launch window, so we got to go this summer. You got to send your things to Mars, and then next winter in February they get to Mars, and we got three missions. So. Uh, I want to give you an update about Mars 2020, okay. which we've been talking about for a long time. It would have been a shame if they had delayed this mission because not only wouldn't they not get to Mars for another couple of years, but they'd have to change the name. <laughs> Mars 2020 is rolling out to the pl- the pad today as we record this, July 28th, 2020. It's going to launch on Thursday, that's July 30th, 2020, at 7.50 a.m. Eastern, that's 6.50 a.m. Central, Woo. Stephen. Uh, 4.50 a.m. Pacific. Blah. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe you can watch it. I'm not going to. I'll be up. Yeah, I'll be, I'm going to watch it. Um, not going to happen. And uh, and then it will get to Mars on February 18th, if all goes well. And, of course, this is the Perseverance rover and the Ingenuity helicopter that's hitching a ride. And, um, and so, and, and a little bit more about the sample return aspect of this mission in just a minute. But I also want to mention, so the United Arab Emirates HOPE mission... And the Chinese Tianwen-1 mission, HOPE, is a weather satellite for Mars, basically. And Tianwen-1 is an orbiter and a lander and a rover. It's everything. It's a floor wax and a dessert topping. Uh, they both launched. So we've already got two out of the three successfully headed to Mars, all arriving in February. It's just Mars 2020 left to go, and that'll happen this week. It's really exciting. Uh, get all the things to Mars, or or do we want all the things to Mars? Mm. More about that in a minute, but first let me talk about the sample return. Okay. Uh, there's a really nice piece in the New York Times uh, today about Mars sample return. If you want an overview of all the steps that you have to go through to get something from Mars back to Earth, this is a very good piece to do it. The goal of the Mars sample return system is to get pieces of Mars back on Earth by 2031. And the idea here is, you know analyzing soil samples on Mars is great. Like it's great that we've got robots there that can do this, but the robots only have some equipment that they can bring with them of such a a quality because it's got to be light and it's got to be resilient. We have better stuff, better analysis capabilities back on earth, obviously, but we would need to get those Mars pieces back to earth to do that. So that's the goal. Get pieces of Mars back by 2031. And this is incredibly complicated. So Perseverance starts the program. And I think I mentioned this before, but my back fence neighbor, his daughter worked on the sample return part of Perseverance at JPL when she was, she was like a summer intern there. Really awesome job. 
And so one aspect of perseverance is to collect little interesting bits of Mars in these vials and then leave them around <laughs> with the hope that they'll be returned to Earth at some point in the future. So it's, a, it's, it's an act of faith on a certain level. But um, as this article details, which I definitely recommend you read, um, they think they can do it all by 2031. It means that in 2026, there need to be two Mars launches, a European orbiter and a NASA lander rover combination. And what happens is they get to Mars, the rover goes down and or the lander goes down and then the rover collects uh, all those sample return tubes from Perseverance. It goes around and picks up. It's like Wally, basically. It's picking up stuff. <laughs> picking up all the tubes, getting all the tubes. Um, and they know where they are. Then it goes back to base and inserts all of the tubes into the lander, which is also uh, part of it is the, what's called the Mars Ascent Vehicle, which is a little rocket that will launch the samples into Mars orbit. This is the heaviest thing that we've ever attempted to land on mars this uh this 2026 lander and partly that's because there has to be a rocket on it to go back up and that that adds a lot of weight to it um so all the samples go in the mars ascent vehicle and the mars ascent vehicle then launches into mars orbit um and it when it gets there it releases the sample container now the sample container i love this detail it is about the size of a soccer ball and it's white for visibility and you're saying to yourself what do you mean for visibility well <laughs> the european earth return orbiter which has now reached mars and is and is relaying all the information from the ground and now now that it knows that the mars ascent vehicle has made it and released the soccer ball it has to go get the soccer ball which in part it has to do by looking for it <laughs> and the reason the soccer ball is white is because that's a high contrast object when you're in space against the blackness of space, hey, there's the soccer ball. I'm going to go get it. They say this is going to work. It's great. It's great. Um, so it gets the soccer ball. And when it's done, it returns to Earth. It fires. So again, complexity here, they have to have enough propellant to get back to Earth, leave Mars orbit and get back to Earth. And then when it reaches Earth, it ejects the Earth entry vehicle containing the soccer ball. It's not. It doesn't just shoot out the soccer ball. Um, and wait for somebody to go get it. Uh, we, we're going we're gonna to just launch it into the ground. And I'm not kidding. It basically aims it at Utah. And then this, then the uh, Earth entry vehicle containing the soccer ball and all the samples smashes into the desert at 90 miles per hour. <laughs> and you're like, but won't that destroy everything? It's like, yeah, it's rocks. It's dirt. It's fine. Yeah. 90 miles an hour. It's fine. It's going to be fine. Um, and one of the things I found most intriguing about this whole story is that there are backup options. Like the people in charge of this have tried to think of ways because it's, you know, it's space and sometimes you have to do workarounds. So first off, Perseverance, depending on what Perseverance finds, they can actually adjust where they want to land. Because if, if there are more interesting things in certain places versus other places, then they can adjust that. So it depends on like what, what samples Perseverance finds that they're really excited about. Also, if the new rover on the new vehicle malfunctions, they have the option of perseverance going back to the um, Mars ascent vehicle and loading the uh, loading the samples itself. So it's a backup for the other rover. Um, and the soccer ball itself will it should remain in Mars orbit for years. So if something happens with the European orbiter, 
you could send another return mission to pick up the soccer ball and send it back to Earth. So lots of options here uh, as backups, which is which is kind of cool. So anyway, that's it, it is I, again uh, the article is great. It, it it goes into all the details of how something that seems simple, which is let's get some rocks and bring them back to Earth from Mars, turns out to be incredibly complicated. Really cool though. I really hope they pull this off. Yeah, it's a good one, uh, and and we will learn a lot that we just can't learn with the with the amazing machines we send there to rove around on the ground. But they're they're severely limited in what they can do. Whereas if we have Mars rocks and dirt in you know in a soccer ball that we can use a smashed slightly smooshed soccer ball in the on the Utah desert floor, uh, we can learn a lot about what's in that soccer ball. So. Um, however, I'm going to point you to another, uh, this is another New York times article from today. So th- they really are on this. This is the like big space day, um, in the science columns. New York times has been, has good science coverage. They've spent understandably a lot of time on the coronavirus issues and, uh, haven't done as much space stuff, but they, they have dropped a lot of space stuff because it is the summer of Mars right now. And summer I, I want to summer of Mars. I want to point you to this story because it's really good. It's basically a conversation between two space writers, Rebecca Boyle and David Brown. And the thesis of it is basically that we spend too much time focusing on Mars. And I, I really appreciated this piece. There's a whole solar system out there, but NASA is very focused on Mars and the way they describe it, um, you know, NASA is a human spaceflight program. That's that's the way they put it. Not to put too fine a point on it, NASA is by far most concerned about human spaceflight. And what you end up getting is um, missions to places where we might send people are going to get the priority. And the places we might send people are the moon and Mars. So Mars gets a lot of focus because we can lay the groundwork for future human missions by learning more about Mars. Now, I would argue that the focus on Mars is also because the quest for history and water and life on Mars, dating back to that discovery in, what was it, 1995, where they had the like rock that they said might contain evidence that's largely disputed now, I think, of Martian uh, biochemistry, um, was a huge PR benefit that NASA continues to ride to get Mars funding because they've spun a whole story. It's not that it isn't true. I'm just saying that they've used that to spin a whole story about the importance of finding water and potential life and understanding Mars. So you combine that with the possibility of sending astronauts to Mars and Mars has gotten a lot of attention. And it's not that Mars isn't interesting. We just talked about the sample return and it's very exciting. But their point is it's kind of taken the shine away from the rest of the solar system that also deserves exploration. They have some nice words about Venus, and we've talked about Venus here before. Venus is close. It's easier to get to Venus than it is to get to Mars. Venus is more like Earth in a lot of ways. Venus is more likely to have had oceans and other things. It's actually a better candidate for past life than Mars probably is before it had its runaway greenhouse effect. And yet we have done very little on Venus, there's there there have been a few Russian probes that have lasted a little bit. You you all know how much I I like the idea of sending a balloon to Mar to Venus, right? Like, it, it's got a thick atmosphere. Send a balloon, space balloon, and it, it, and it can stay for a long time floating around in the Venus atmosphere at at pressures that are actually you could send people there too in the long run. They couldn't land on the surface, but they could do a lot of work from a floating platform. So so much with Venus, and then the outer solar system. 
the the water in the outer solar system is the thing that sort of has driven some of the funding. So like the Europa Clipper, the liquid chemistry of Titan, even though it's not water, with the Titan helicopter, quadcopter kind of concept. Uh, and there's a Discovery class mission coming up that's for Triton at Neptune that's called Trident. That's one of the ones that they've funded, as we've said here, a little more research on. Um, it's a good piece because basically what they're saying is Mars is great, but you know there's a whole other solar system to explore and maybe the planetary science budgets are out of balance here. And I can't argue with that as much as I like the Mars exploration and as much as it's become a point of national pride in America with NASA's ability to successfully land things on Mars. It is painful to think about how little exploration we've had, especially of the outer solar system, but also of Venus. I mean, there's whole planetary systems that have a single flyby to them, and that's it. Right. Yeah, we know so little about Uranus and Neptune because all we've had is Voyager 2. Yeah. That's it. So, which, uh, which trident, trident is an attempt to, you know, it's like, yes, uh, 17 days uh, around Neptune. We're going to learn so much that we don't know, just like New Horizons showed us with Pluto. That was a huge thing to to see Pluto in that way and and you know more like this please is sort of their argument and i agree plus the venus thing right which is just like it is a shame i know we can't set foot on venus but there's so much it's so appealing this idea that you could float something and it's it's literally at earth atmosphere pressure and roughly earth temperature and you could do science extended science in the atmosphere of venus with uh robots or people it's it's like you know it's right there and we and we're so distracted by Mars, as great as Mars is, it's it's maybe not that great. I guess is the point. Maybe we need to spread our uh, spread our money out a little bit more. I can't argue. No, can't argue either. I uh, I think that'd be awesome. More outer solar system. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Yeah, more space exploration. I would go for that too. Just more. Keep going to Mars. Fine. More outer solar system. That's it though. That's I think this is uh that's that's it for this episode of of Liftoff. We've we've covered it uh here in the middle of the summer of Mars and next time we'll have a better idea about uh what's going to happen in February uh around Mars. Sounds good to me. If you want to find the links to stuff we spoke about, uh I definitely echo Jason, those two New York Times articles are really good. Yeah. You can find links to them in the show notes at relay.fm/liftoff/129. While you're there, you can become a member to support the show directly, and you will get, amongst a bunch of other awesome benefits, our annual special, which is coming up in just a few weeks. Mm -hmm. You can uh, find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Snell, and you can follow me there as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all. <laughs>